This is now a moment where I'm like, okay, whatever gems I learned, whatever mistakes I made, whatever successes I had, like, let me put that out now for the people. So, cause I'm, I'm, I'm in it in real time. Like you may be two steps behind me, but I got you. Hello and welcome to Acting Up, the podcast that dives deep into the world of TV and film that highlights our people, our communities, and our stories. I'm your host, Courtney Wills, Entertainment Director at The Grio, and this week we're speaking with Amber Ruffin and Yvonne Orji as we discuss what's going on with Black women in comedy. I just got back from the Tribeca Film Festival, which was in person in New York this past you know, week and a half. And there was so much art that was born out of this pandemic, out of this lockdown, out of this insane time. It was really amazing to see. It was kind of therapeutic. It was actually kind of difficult at times because in fact, number one, you know, this is the first trip I've taken in over a year. This is the first time I was out with strangers. I'm in airports, I'm on airplanes, I'm in cabs, like I'm in crowded spaces. I definitely wasn't like skipping around town, like yay, we're free. It was, you know, I was very aware, but it was also quite eye-opening to the fact that we are opened up and like things are changing and like we are approaching at least, you know, post-pandemic and we've all been affected by COVID in so many ways, but I think that watching it on screen chronicled as if it was something that is done and something that like I was able to watch compacted from beginning to end in an hour and a half or two hours, unexpectedly made my mind start processing some of those emotions. And it was heavy. That happened with several of the titles that I saw there. I saw so many good things. I saw so many thought-provoking things. One of the best things that I saw was at Radio City Music Hall, the first time that they've opened since they shut down, was with something billed as the Untitled Dave Chappelle documentary. And what it ended up being was this like magnificently beautiful documentary about the comedy shows that we know he was doing out in Ohio, where he lives, Yellow Springs, that kind of were a secret, I think, at the time. He had permission from the governor. It started small and grew and grew. I feel entirely like left out of the whole thing. Uh, Dave, if you're listening next time, please, I would really like to go. I would not tell about it. And I'm actually not sure how much about the documentary I'm allowed to talk about right now because it hasn't been released to the public. So All I'm going to give you is that it was so moving. It was hilarious. It was done very, very, very well. And I cannot wait for you all to see it. But I will say that kind of buckle up for the art that is about to hit the big and small screens that was born of COVID because it is going to make you process. Some of you have been processing all along. You know, others of us, I think, are able to kind of compartmentalize, but there's a lot of art coming that's gonna touch on so many angles of what we've all been through, what we're all still going through. And it was pretty incredible to see. I moderated a Tribeca Talks event on Saturday, and that was at the premiere of the one and only Dick Gregory. That is another documentary that I can't wait for everyone to see. It premiered there at Tribeca on Juneteenth executive produced by Lena Waithe and Kevin Hart, directed by Andre Gaines. It was 
so eye-opening. Like I had no, I knew about Dick Gregory as a comedian. I mean, he is the comedian. He is the father of the kind of comedy we see from black comedians now. He was the first one to go up there and tell jokes about what was going on in the world, tell jokes about racism to white people. Like back in the day, that's what he was doing. All of this social commentary, talking about oppression, talking about getting you know hemmed up by the police, talking about the racist that traced you down the street or the guy that called you the N-word, like they were not doing that before Dick Gregory. And so this documentary kind of encompassed, I mean, from the early days of that, his entire life from beginning to end was there and what a life it was. I somehow have lived all of these years not knowing what a humongous contribution Dick Gregory made to the fight for civil rights, to bringing health and holistic health and nutritional information to Black communities, putting his money where his mouth is and giving his like bazillions of dollars away to all of these causes that he wholeheartedly supported, essentially left his throne as the king of comedy to pursue a hundred percent. Like he just left it. Like when Chappelle like left the Chappelle show, it's like if he went to Africa and started like building houses and cleaning water and saving lives and never ever stopped and, you know, died relatively broke. So all that to say, that film is going to premiere on Showtime on the 4th of July, which is incredibly appropriate because if it does nothing else, it solidifies and explains why Dick Gregory is a true American hero. We're talking about Dick Gregory. We're talking about Dave Chappelle. That is perfect because what we're talking about today on Acting Up is this freaking renaissance happening, you know, with Black comics right now. I have never seen so many shows on the air, like helmed, created, executive, produced by Black folks, Black women specifically. Right now on TV, you've got Pause with Sam J at HBO. You've got The Amber Ruffin Show at Peacock. You've got Robin Thede killing it with another season of A Black Lady Sketch Show. You've got the incomparable satire skills of Z-Way over on Showtime right now. You've got Phoebe Robinson with Doing the Most with Phoebe Robinson. Black women in comedy are just killing it. We've got two of them on the show today. One of them is Amber Ruffin, who is such a fantastic, innovative comedian. Obviously, you know She helms her own late night talk show, The Amber Ruffin Show on Peacock, and she has been making us laugh for years. She worked extensively on the Seth Meyers show. She wrote for the first season of A Black Lady Sketch Show. She, in January, she co-authored a book with her sister titled, You'll Never Believe What Happened to Lacey, Crazy Stories About Racism, and hit the New York Times bestsellers list. Just this week, Amber Ruffin announced that she is heading to Tokyo to basically cover the Olympics for Peacock. I sat down with this comedic genius to talk about how she cultivated the culture of her own late night show, how she curated this very melanated writer's room, and how she manages to really push boundaries when it comes to the kinds of jokes she tells, the kind of commentary that she's making about politics, about our culture, about our society. 
It's some really groundbreaking stuff and take a listen. Oh my gosh. So I'm so excited to have you as a guest today. You have been doing some incredible things lately, even throughout all of the chaos that these last 12, 14 months have brought us. And I think that it's such a refreshing experience to be able to turn the TV on at night and hear from you, especially, you know, through all of this chaos. I was just re-watching a segment that you did right after the Capitol riot. And it reminded me how important it is that right after that crazy situation, we had a voice of reason late night telling us what happened, making us laugh, not so much about it, but through it. And also just telling the truth. What is it like? What has it been like for you to be able to have this platform at such a tumultuous time? It is therapy to have this platform in this tumultuous time. Like, it hurts to watch all of these horrible things happen in our country and then to be able to talk about it with, you know, a writer's room and then an audience, it feels great and it does help work through it. My goal is always to just make sure people don't feel insane. You know, because when the protests were happening, people were like, well, I don't get it. These people were, and that was making my face hot. And I couldn't think it it truly was driving me bonkers. And I just wanted to ungaslight everyone as best as I could. Obviously, we don't see a lot of women that look like you on late night television. The last time I was having a conversation like this, it was with Robin Thede, when she premiered her show that was too short-lived in my opinion. But talk to me a little bit about, you know, the journey to get here and what it took to kind of take, you know, take this spot and get this kind of platform. My journey to the Amber Ruffin show was weird. You know, I started improvising and was, you know, uh, actor, writer, improviser at different theaters, Boom Chicago and Amsterdam and Second City in Chicago. And it prepared us for all kinds of things. Like when you write for television, you have days to just write a thing and then you perform it. If it goes good, great. If it doesn't, you throw it in the trash, no one ever sees it. But you know, when you perform on a stage, it's super difficult. 300 people see it every time you do it. You have zero time, you know, someone shouts out lemon and then you have to instantly sing a song about lemons. There isn't, you can't sit down and, you know, write it out. So I feel like this is super leisurely a pace to work at, you know, even though it's like two shows and need to generate a ton of sketches, like anything's easier than making a song in an instant. So it doesn't feel as scary as it maybe should but uh that didn't at all answer your question the answer to your question is it took a lot of flexibility for me to get here like when I started at late night with Seth Meyers I thought oh maybe I'll write and hopefully I'll get good enough so that they won't fire me and that was my first that was my thought for the whole first year I here and then I realized oh I'm going to be performing quite a bit so then I started writing to that and 
they never balked mm-hmm. at the idea of putting me on ever. So I just kept writing increasingly weird and long bits until I accidentally ended up with proof that I could have my own show. And so it was easier to sell when we had all this proof, which uh, was, yeah, an accident really. Yeah. You know, of course, we know that you worked extensively on the Seth Meyers show, just like we know that Robin worked extensively on the Jon Stewart show. And I feel like the conversation around making space for shows like this is always, you know, like the target demo doesn't necessarily tune in at that time, right? Like you're not specifically talking to Black women and will they tune in and will they support and, you know, all of this. But then you look and you go, there have been Black women writing the jokes for the white men for years, you know, making everybody laugh, Black, white, female, male, anyone, um, that like you said, is proof that you really do have the chops. We really can pull from a place that isn't just intended to reach one audience and certainly not just intended to reach the African-American audience. What has it been like for you to be able to kind of define your voice and serve as proof positive that there absolutely can be spaces like this for people like us? Well, Black people have always had to be able to do both, you know, and that is across the board. That's friggin' hairstylists, that's writers, that's uh, stylists, it's everyone. So what I liken it to is we have always had to, you know, as comedy writers who write for white people, we've always had to take our ideas and then change them or at least check them to make sure that white people in general can understand and handle it. So we have to change our references to maybe not the first thing in our mind. Like it can't be Babyface. It can't be John Scotta. It has to be Michael Bolton. Okay, then the joke still works, you know? And so when you write on a Black show, all of those weights are removed. And your very first thought is 100% right. Everybody understands it. And you don't have to use any special language. You don't have to change the way you speak. You know, I tell my writers, I want exactly what you would say, exactly the way you would say it. Every one of my writers almost is also a performer. And so I'm like, just give me what you would write for you to say. And then I will get your delicious laughs. Yes. What does your writer's room look like? My writer's room looks like Jenny Hagel, who is my writing partner at Late Night with Seth Meyers. She is Puerto Rican. And there is Dwayne Perkins, who is Black. Shantira Jackson, who is Black. Ashley Nicole Black, who is Black. And sometimes Michael Harriet, who is Black. And uh, poor Ian Morgan, who is a white guy from Late Night with Seth Meyers. (laughs) And uh, so our writer's room is most is, is, is Black. It's also mostly gay. I I think we're majority gay. Wow. Now, did you go in with that as an intention of being a very diverse writer's room? And if so, why was that important to you? I wanted a Black writer's room so that I could, because I know we are processing gross things and I don't want people to have to do that in an environment where they could be in any kind of emotional danger. Um, So I just wanted to create a safe space. I mean, if we have to talk about all these painful things, then 
let's do it with family, you know? And when we have our morning meetings and stuff and things do get sad, you can look at, you know, six people who understand completely, you know, what you're going through, feel the exact same way you do. So, I mean, after almost never having that, it is magic. It feels great. It's, it feels great. It feels exactly like you think it would feel, except better. <laughs> oh gosh, I really love that. You know, I, I can relate. I work at the Griot, thank God. You know, so many of my coworkers have been navigating all of this craziness right there with me. And exactly like, you don't have to put on that extra layer, that extra mask as we're already going through so much. I want to talk about, uh, you know, the, the kind of changing Hollywood landscape, right? And how much I think progress has been made and then as well as how many sweeping declarations from networks to brands to studios uh, committing themselves to more rigorous efforts at diversity and inclusion and not, you know, sexually harassing people and doing things that they already probably should not have been doing. Is it, is it tangible yet as someone on the inside? Is it perceivable? Do you feel like you suddenly have any more agency to call shots, to demand respect, uh, you know, to get paid what you're worth now? Or, you know, is that, is that a moving target? I think that there are a lot of tangible changes. There's, um, dang it, I forget the name of it, the Ava DuVernay Initiative. Yeah, Array. Array exists, and everyone who I have to do business with is like, okay, these are the ways we are going to become Array compliant. Wow, you. (laughs) Pretty much, she's setting the standard for sure. I mean, it's so exciting. Like, it, I, I, uh, two things. Like, yes, I physically see more Black people in his meetings, yes, a thousand times, yes. And also uh, people are seeing themselves as the problem and that was never the case. We were always the problem, always. It was always, you writers aren't good enough, you actors aren't good enough. I'm sorry, you're just not good enough. And now they're like, oh, the way we judge you is dumb. Uh, so it because the focus has shifted, I, I think things are starting to shift because until you can do wrong, you're not going to change. <laughs> Once you realize, oh, I've been doing dirt, then it is possible for you to become good. So I, I do think mm-hmm. we are um, trending towards um, more inclusivity and just like an easier place to work. Yeah. Do you find yourself being tapped? for guidance and advice on how to actually achieve that, whether, you know, on your own show at Peacock or just in the industry at large, do you feel like people are, are actually asking the right questions on what the right moves could be? I think people are starting with staffing, it seems like, and that's Mm -hmm. great. It's great. Great, but yeah. if you're inviting people into a house that's on fire, you probably are doing really good, you know what I mean? So, I mean, yes, it's 
great. Um, also, you know, let's real let's clean house from the top mm. down. Let's clean it up because these problems didn't just start. You got to get rid of the root. Is there anything that's still hard for you to joke about or laugh about? Like anything that you even for yourself feels a little bit too fresh or off limits or like it's hard for you to find, you know, that balance of sensitivity and, you know, this shit is real and it's happening. Well, I think every comedian likes to walk the tightrope. Like we all love to be like, is this too far? Is this too far? Where... Well, how far can we take it? You know, and I also think like my goal is to have fun with everybody. You know, my goal is never mm -hmm. to make sure that everyone knows that I'm the that you're. It was never my deal. So I, I rarely find myself joking about things that I shouldn't. I think like people are sad. There's like some certainly some topics that are off limits where you think maybe you could get a laugh but people aren't ready mm -hmm. but I never like yeah I don't think I'm 100% in danger of that hmm, that's an excellent question <laughs> marinate on it get back to me one day maybe. Oh, okay <laughs> who makes you laugh like all the time who you know who do you watch who are you a fan of and who do you think is just hysterical I think my favorite thing is to like look at these goofuses on twitter it's my favorite. Like, I like, you know, of course, Michelle Buteau. Every time I turn on the TV and I'm watching a TV show she's not in, I'm like, how stupid are you that you are not casting her in your shit? What is wrong with you? Yeah. Um, so, so it's her. I'm always looking for her. Um, Robin Thede just literally as a human being is extremely funny. Like, yes, she's a great writer and blah, blah, blah. But she just to be around is hilarious. But yeah, I like these Twitter children. They are killing me. There's a girl named Lisa Beasley on Twitter and I assume TikTok. I'm sorry, I'm quite old. Um, and she posts videos of her doing impressions and it's killing me. It's like Lori Lightfoot, the mayor of Chicago. It's so great. It's just a beautiful impression. And I was watching her stuff the other day and I had to just be like, you never see this. You never see like fun impressions from a black woman. You never see it. Like I can't name a woman who does fun black impressions of bunches of black, like I don't, I can't yeah. think of Yeah, she's my new next thing in my brain. I think she's great. Awesome. Such a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us. We are such huge fans of yours at The Griot and, you know, look forward to everything that you have coming our way. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. You have a great day. We'll also be talking to the phenomenal Yvonne Orji, who just wrapped the final season of Insecure, you guys. And I'm sure, like me, you were following their Instagram feeds last week, watching them cry as they were like, you know, Issa's Instagram, like last scene with Yvonne or last moment with Jay. I mean, it was so, I was crying for days just watching them. I spoke to Yvonne just a couple days after that final rap about her magnificent and truly like astounding meteoric rise 
that really kicked off to the mainstream with Insecure. And now, five seasons later, she's got an HBO comedy special under her belt. She just released a hilarious and also really heartwarming book called Bamboozled by Jesus. And so we'll talk to her about that, about where she's been, about where she's going and how she's kind of kept it all together throughout. Yeah, this is a very sexy LA vibe. I'm coming over. Come, yes, come over. We'll have our own rap party. <laughs> Listen, girl, please, please. We're all just trying to, we were all just trying to get through last week. Just get through. All those tears on the Instagram feed had me crying in my room watching them. So beautiful. And also like legitimately sad like very sad that this is over because it's just been such an experience to be a, a part of obviously as a journalist but also as a fan it's just been such a, a big experience I think for all of us it's funny because you know those are real tears I was crying for so many reasons like my girl the show so many reasons and you know I think people who have been like rocking with us when we were just like the little engine that could until then becoming like you know Emmy nominated it's like yo we were really just out here trying to enjoy life enjoy each other and do a show that we we thought we would like and then other people rock with us like, we were crying for a lot of reasons I think a lot of people felt the same sentiments that we felt absolutely we were crying right along with you and it's only been five years but it feels like it's been kind of part of the fabric of our culture for a lot longer than that and I think it's because at least for me you know I mean I was I was covering in season one and like hoping there was a season two and like watching it grow every season into this thing that has catapulted HBO into a different bracket when it comes to attracting Black viewers to all of your individual careers. I mean, look how far you have come professionally. Look at Issa's career. Like so much has kind of sprung off from Insecure. It's like nothing I've ever seen really. It was a gift that kept on giving, to be honest, you know, because so many people identified with our characters, it then became like, we want, you know, Jay Ellis and this thing, or, you know, we want a Molly type, you know, I, I, my, my biggest joke that I, not joke, but the way I know that this show really hit part of the zeitgeist was when I was asked to speak at a law firm. And I was like, wait, y'all know Molly, I'm not a real life lawyer. They were like, no, but a lot of the things your character experienced are things that like real lawyers experience. And so we just would like, and afterwards, because, you know, it was for the, the Black lawyers at the firm, they were like, we're so appreciative that you got to talk to them because you could say things that we have been feeling, but we can't say because our jobs are on the line. You know what I mean? Like you could, you could basically be our decoy and, mm -hmm. and say all the things that need to be said for them to hear, but without us getting fired. <laughs> That's pretty funny. You know, I was thinking about what your character Molly represented that was so innovative. I mean, aside from like, duh, the friendship and the story and just seeing real young Black people and friendships and relationships, Molly in particular to me really filled a void the void of seeing a successful Black woman who's very successful professionally 
and messy as hell, you know, these other mm-hmm. places, almost like, like humanize the black women boss bitches, please. And you did that. <laughs> Yeah, no, absolutely. I think we're multi-hyphens, right? We're not just CEO, mother. It's like CEO, mess, but super mom in therapy, but flawed. You know, it's just like we created characters that in their own way were insecure, right? In in different, you know, even when you go back to like season three, you know, we got to see um, you know, two or three, we got to see Daniel Crack because he had been this like, almost like ooh sexy time ooh look at him he a boss and then when you saw like somebody else in his world that was popping in a way that he wasn't you got to see his own insecurities as a black man as an entrepreneur as an up-and-coming artist and you're just like oh the the glass is not you know they got some cracks in it yeah and that's all of our characters have cracks in them yes absolutely what was there one episode or even a scene that you hated filming that was just hard to get through? <laughs> yes. Oh, wait, not that one. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, yes. I think everyone will know, like, every one of the actors, the Coachella episode was hard. And then we have an episode this season that was just torture, just torture for so many different reasons, for so many different actors. We got through it, but it was one of those, like, can we never do, oh, that's right. This is the last season, so we don't have to worry about it. Great, we're not doing this again. You know what I mean? <laughs> oh my God, I cannot wait to see that. Obviously, we'll all be waited with bated breath until this, this next and final season of Insecure comes out. But luckily, we've got more stuff coming from you. This fantastic book, Bamboozled by Jesus, is so much fun. Thank I can't you. wait to get into that. And also, you're in, what is it called? The Vacation? You know, vacation friends. Yes. What, what is that? What are you doing? Tell me a little bit about that project. Yeah. It's with John Cena, Little Rel, myself, a young lady named Meredith. And, you know, basically Rel and I are this couple and we go on vacation. You know, you meet every time you go on vacation, you meet folks that are interesting. You kind of befriend them for the time you're on vacation. You don't expect to become lifelong friends with them because you know what happens on vacation, you think stays on vacation. Yes. And then, you know, they kind of find us in our real life and they think that we are an extension of that vacation. And we're, and, and we're like, we don't, we don't want this. And they invade our space. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like a lot of fun. What was it like kind of transitioning from the small screen to that project? It was, it was just cool to work with cool people. You know, Rel was on Insecure and then we get to work together again in this film. So it was really cool. I think that, do you ever have moments where it hits you like, man, I'm kind of here. No, because I'm still getting there. I'm like, John Cena is the get and, and Little Rel is the get. I'm pretty sure their fan base would say that I'm going to see this movie for John Cena. We don't know who the heck Yvonne Orgy is. So Whatever. I, I, I haven't done enough. <laughs> One day I'm going to make, you know, John Cena bank. And then that's how I really know that I'm the get. Right now, I don't feel like the get. That's how we'll know, right? On the, with the zeros on the checks. Yeah. Um, Yvonne, this book, Bamboozled by Jesus, like, of course, is just as hilarious as I expected it to be, but it was also just extremely inspiring and uplifting, and I feel like you really put put yourself out there with this project. What made you want to write this book, and why now? Yeah, I mean, you know, trust me, with everything that I got going on, writing a book was not necessarily a thing that I needed to do. I was like, I'm good. 
And then God was like, mm, actually, daughter. And I was like, spam, you got to stop with this. <laughs> like, you know, I'm busy. He was like, yeah, you, you doing all this other stuff for you. Here's what I want you to do for me. And I was like, all right, cool. And I felt like I had like reached a natural end to phase one of where, you know, where my life is. Right. And there are so many people who are up and coming artists or transitioning, especially after a pandemic and the global quarantine. It's like people are coming out and, and either realizing like I have to pivot, you know, or this job that I was in, like, I don't know that it brings me that much joy anymore. So I'm going to try something new, but like, I'm, I'm about to start from the bottom when I was at the top and this other thing. So people are really experiencing their own form of bamboozlement when they're being called to like, shit. Yeah. I was writing this book at a time where I'm like, yo, I've had my shift and I've been successful in my shift. And so this is now a moment where I'm like, okay, let me, whatever gems I learned, whatever mistakes I made, whatever successes I had, like, let me put that out now for the people. Cause I'm in it in real time. Like, you may be two steps behind me, but I got you. I'm, I'm going to go on to the next phase and I'm going to be learning that. And whatever I learn from that, I'm going to get you on the back end. You know what I mean? So it just makes sense that I'm like, let me share what I've learned and like put a pin in this phase because, you know, we were starting from the bottom. Now we're here and hope by the grace of God, I don't have to go back to the bottom. But for the people who feel like they're back there coming out from the bottom, here you go. Here's what, here's what worked for me. Hopefully it'll work for you. Yes. And you know, that's so interesting because I think you're exactly right. Like no one has come through this last, what are we at now? Like 18 months almost. Like no one has come out of this unscathed, unchanged. And I think that now, I think yesterday, California reopened and there was a big sigh of relief, but also a little bit of like, wait, what? I kind of forgot how to do this. I kind of, it took a long time to adjust and learn how to live my life and navigate my responsibilities under the parameters of, of COVID and quarantine and social unrest. And like, am I going to go out and get shot today? Yeah. And then it's like, okay, just kidding. We're done. Be free and marry. Like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Well, that was also the bamboozlement of Jesus right there because I wanted this book to come out in 2020. I was like, show enough. I was going to have my comedy special. Then I was coming off an Emmy now. I was like, this, this, this my trifecta year. Come on, baby. <laughs> and then the, and then the, the world shut down. And I was like, wait, what do you mean? So it's not going to come out this year? Cool, 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 cool. And it, God knew. He was like, nah, because next year, when everybody is coming up off their own bamboozle journey, this will resonate even more. And I, was, I, didn't, I couldn't see that. I didn't know. I was just trying to be greedy. It also, you know, reading the book kind of, made me realize that, you know, we've been talking so much and focused so much on dealing with and navigating trauma, right? And like fear, whether it's COVID or, you know, the aftermath of George Floyd or that crazy election. I think it was really easy to focus on the negative and how tough it was to navigate. But there were also so many instances where, for me at least, God was just showing up and showing out like on such a wide level. Like remember at the beginning when people were like banging pots and pans and clapping for nurses and shit when they went to the hospitals, like yeah. things like that were just so beautiful about this. I was looking through my phone and I saw that like during the George Floyd protests, there was a day where I went, you know, down to my little 
tiny town of Claremont. And I was like sobbing happy tears because there were so many white people out there protesting and you know holding Black Lives Matter signs. And I think it's mm-hmm. easy to glaze over those moments where, where you know, God and his power were just really evident on a, on a big scale. And I thought that this book was a really nice reminder um, to kind of bring us back to that. Absolutely. It really was. For me, I'm just like, he is present, even in the midst. Because a lot of times what happens is, you know, believers or people who aren't believers are like, well, if God is real, then why? It's like, oh, you got the wrong question, fam. That's, that's, that's not the question to ask. Like, it's, that's what's going to happen. It happened in the Bible. It happened while Jesus was walking the earth. So it ain't that he don't care about us if that stuff happens. Is who are we or who do we become in the midst of that stuff happening? You know, how do we grow? How do we learn? How do we use that to pivot into what our true calling or our true purposes? And so, you know, it, it really is that like reminder. But in the midst of the stuff, it's like, you know, if you get the perspective that's essential, you'll see his hand still working in the midst of the bad stuff happening. Yes, yes. Yvonne, I've always kind of wanted to ask you like what, and especially now that, you know, fine, you didn't have your trifecta year in 2020, but it was still a real big year for you and your career. And obviously like it's still only growing. Has it become any harder or have there been times where like as your success grows, as your star kind of rises, staying connected to your faith has been a challenge or has felt, you know, tested or you wondered whether or not you could kind of keep that at the forefront of your overall image like have, have you ever felt pressure to like yo tone like tone down the Jesus stuff I wonder if anybody said that to you uh no because I, I it's not toned up or toned down it's it's just it's on it's on tone it's mm-hmm. on you know what I mean like no one's ever said to me tone down the Nigerian stuff because <laughs> you know what I mean like I'm like yeah. I, I don't know how to you know what I mean like it's all intertwined so it's like if you tone down the, the Nigerian stuff you tone down Yvonne Orji if you tone down the Jesus stuff you tone down so it's like if you want the me that I am, you get all of it, right? Yeah. But, you know, in terms of like, obviously pre-insecure season one, I had nothing but time to like really just develop my faith, really just commune and fellowship and luxuriate and lather in all my time that I get to spend with Jesus. You know, he, he done blessed me and we popping now. And that's the thing that, you know, if I, if I can be honest, like has, has suffered. And so I, I like to take time to like recharge and rejuvenate because I never want to get to a point where like he done blessed me and I forgot about it. It was like, that's not, we're not doing that because that's trash. That's the, that's a surefire way for all the, the blessings to just dry up. Yeah. And, and it's not that I'm, I'm trying to get connected to him so that the blessings don't stop, but it's like, he's for me, he's source. Right. So I, it, it, it's funny because he also knows like, like God knew that I was going to get busy. Right. And it's like the time that you have, it's kind of like, when you're single, you got time for your friends. Like, girl, yeah, come on, girl, let's go to Greece. Well, we, we going to Miami for a weekend. One night in Miami, turn up. You know, <laughs> then you get married and it's like, you got different priorities. Everything shifts. It's like, ah, girl, I mean, maybe a week in October. It's like, we got a plan in October. We only, we do. So it's the same thing. It's like, it's not that you don't want that communion and that fellowship and that time and that bonding, but it's like, it's a lot that takes your energy. It's a lot that takes your time, et cetera. Yeah. And so for me, it's like still trying to keep that connection in the middle of everything good that he's doing for me, right? To just be like, hey, I don't ever want you to think I don't appreciate you. I'm taking you for granted. Like we still here. 
I just need to catch my breath, fam, and I promise. I, it's me and you. It's me and you to the end, daddy. You know, and so that, that's been the, the challenge for me. Yeah, I bet. I mean, exactly. Just like managing time. I mean, even managing relationships. Like, obviously, we get to see you with, you know, some of your friends that are also kind of all of our favorites, like Issa and Lovey, you know, respectable twerking on Diddy. Yes, we saw that. Uh, Not respectable <laughs> twerking though, hysterical. <laughs> but I mean, like your friends you had before this, your friends who are not in the industry, even carving out time to like contribute to relationships like that, I think, of course, inevitably changes as your plate gets more and more full. Have you found that kind of balance between, you know, Yvonne, the career and the star and the actor and Yvonne, Yvonne? Yeah. I, I mean, I'm finding this, I mean, after the quarantine, I really took time to be like, yo, what really is, is important? Like 2021, my, my words for this year were ease and flow. Mm -hmm. Um, because I really, I want to tap back into that. It's like, I've, I, I did the grind. I mean, you, you read in the book, it's like, I, I've done it. Everything, you know, that you, you're seeing is, is fruit, right? And I'm just like, there's got to be another way. What's the way where I've done the hard thing and now instead of chasing, things are attracting, you know, I'm, I'm attracting things. And I'm, it, it's a really different seat to be, to be in because now you're like, all right, I'm also going to make time for people I care about. I'm going to only do things that I really want to do. I'm going to, you know, and so it's just like, that's when you make time for you. You make time for the people you love because it's like, work is dope. Work is great, but work, I, like, you know, you see it all the time. Nobody wants to, you know, on their tombstone. Here lies Yvonne. She did a lot of work. <laughs> it was like, all right, cool. I'm glad that I gave people stuff, but it's like, does she enjoy life? Yeah. Like, yeah. What else? Yeah. It's like, you know, I, as a child of immigrants, it's like, I, I've seen that. Like my mom was that woman it's like everybody knew her to be hardworking, and I and I got that gene in me but it's like cool 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 I also want to enjoy some of the fruits of this labor because just working for work and say we got to do better yeah the last thing I wanted to talk to you about I have had the pleasure of kind of focusing on the fact that we're starting to see a lot more representation I think on screen especially on the small screen of immigrants from Africa and of life in Africa, food from Africa, you know, careers like yours and Lovey's and Falake's, like actually picking up steam where you guys are, you know, able to kind of open the door, open a window at least, and, and kind of show us what that journey has been like. And so I wonder for you if that shift is um, perceptible, like, are, are you noticing that it's at least for me, it seems like they're, we're starting to move the needle a little bit in how Africa and Africans are portrayed on American TV. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I have a whole show that's, that's coming out called First Gen that's, that's literally going to be about the first generation Nigerian American experience. And I, this show I've been trying to get made since 2015 and we only just sold it to Disney plus, like, you know, at the top of the year. So yeah. Uh, yeah. We, uh, I, I, and I know that's because like the industry is catching up to what I've always known. You know, I, I started the show in 2015 cause I was like, yo, I believe that like at this point, everybody knows Nigerian interacted with one, their best friend is one, their doctor is one, their, you know, their child's soccer 
uh, teammate is one, like all of the above and trying to like get the folks who green light stuff to like see the same thing I saw, it was a hard gamble. But then cut two, you got the um, Black Panthers, you got the Bob Hart type Sholas, you got the, you know, you got the Jalof Rice challenges, whatever it is, you have enough creators of color and performers of color from that, you got Uzo Aduba, um, David Yellowo, you have you know, Chibotel, you, you name it, you know, you, like you said, Falake, Gina Yashere, and even someone like Trevor Noah, he's not Nigerian, but he's South African, he, he leans into his Africanness on The Daily Show. Mm-hmm. The, the, all of these reasons and more, when you then go to sell the show that you've been trying to sell for five years, it makes more sense. You're like, all right, okay, I, y'all just needed time to catch up. Cool, here we are, let's rock. Ugh, I cannot wait to see that. When might when might we see that show? You know, we we it's the works. Hopefully, you know, I, I don't want to put a date out there, jinx anything, but hopefully sooner <laughs> rather than later. Um, did you see High on the Hog on Netflix? Oh my gosh, I was actually I started watching that like last week, and then I had to go to sleep because we had a four o'clock call time. I was like, I was, I was, I was suffering myself. I was like, I need to watch something that's not insecure. I need to read. And it was like, girl, it's midnight. If you don't want to go to sleep right now. And I was like, you're right, Jesus. So, um, yeah, I started watching it, but just, just to see the continent and just to see Nigeria and just to see like how the foods that we enjoy back home translate to some of the foods here. I was like, oh, so dope. I got to finish it so dope and then we finally like you know top chef this season started like doing challenges that were based on african food having some more african chefs and it's like it is really such a shame to realize just how much of a lack of connection and a lack of knowledge that there is and i just think that art like yours work like yours it does it, it chips away at um you know that reality and it makes space for us to finally start to like realize where we're from, be proud of it and draw those lines instead of it feeling like some far, far off, you know, place where we're revisiting our history and we're tracking our roots. And I just think that your career has actually done um, a lot to get people interested in that and to put that on people's radar. So I continue to be such a fan of yours, rooting for you. Uh, everybody listening to this podcast, you have got to cop this book. It will make you laugh. It will make you feel good. Um, and it'll give you more of Yvonne. So check it out. Oh, I appreciate you. Yes, check it out. It's funny because I, I I love the people who are like, I got the audiobook so I can hear your voice. And then they were like, but then I had to get the uh, the hardcover because I had needed to highlight and take notes because it, it was too many things to try and remember. And I was like, I bless y'all. For Thank real, you. I think a workbook might be next. Yeah, it's coming soon. Okay. Coming soon. <laughs> oh, I love it, my dear. Thank you so much. Uh, I hope I get to talk to you again soon. And we just obviously cannot wait for all the fabulous things coming from you, including Insecure and this and this um, Vacation Friends. That sounds cool, too. All right. Have a good one. Take care. Okay, bye. bye. Both of these women are just a few of the names I hope to see in a few weeks when the Emmys announces the nominees for this year's award show. So many Black actors, actresses, creators have presented work that is worthy of getting recognized on TV's Biggest Night. And we'll be talking to several people that I think should be on the shortlist over the coming weeks.
Thank you for listening to Acting Up. If you liked what you heard, please give us a five-star review and subscribe to the show wherever you listen to your podcasts. Please email all questions, suggestions, and compliments to podcasts at thegrio.com. Follow us on Instagram at actingup.pod. Acting Up is brought to you by The Grio and executive produced by Courtney Wills and produced by Cameron Blackwell.